Welcome back to Beyond Strange World. I'm Tim being joined by Lance. What's up, Lance? What's going on, Tim? We certainly are involved in a strange world in the current climate of the times. Uh, I'm doing well despite that. How about yourself? Yes, it is a strange world out there, and no one knows that better than our friend on the line, Christopher Garitano. How's it going, Chris? So far, so good. In this situation, every day does not fail to um, to make me feel like I'm in the twilight zone. Honestly, you know, uh, I, I, I was uh, watching a lot of Serling recently, going back to some of the things he wrote, uh, even reading an awesome graphic novel about his life. You know, we're we're living in that dynamic that he forged so well in the 1950s with his, you know, his his most well known work the twilight zone because it was about a disruption usually of normalcy and that's what we had we had this kind of complacent existence that was completely disrupted and we're being forced to exist uh in this introspective state surrounded by fear and that is the theme of a lot of those Twilight Zone episodes, as well as Stephen King, who was heavily influenced by Twilight Zone and George Romero. Uh, so I've been, this has really affected me, this whole situation, as well as obviously the whole world in so many ways. Would you call him like a, a prophetic uh, figure in history? That is certainly something I'm contemplating for so many fiction writers from H.G. Wells on. And even going back to the purest wells of mythology, I, I have really thought about this. And each of those sources inform the next. Serling was, uh, you know, while he was in the military, was devouring, you know, like Weird Tales magazine and stuff like that. And was even confronted by one of his, uh, you know, co-power troopers. And the guy's like, you know, you're, you're a writer. What are you reading this junk for? And he's kind of like, don't be a snob, you know, like there's some fantastic stuff in here, which that element found its way over into the Twilight Zone. If it wasn't for the Twilight Zone, we wouldn't have Stephen King. We wouldn't have Steven Spielberg. We wouldn't have um, George Romero. All of these guys were informed by, in part, by Rod Serling because they were watching that stuff on TV and heavily, some of them were kids, heavily influenced by it. And that is very, is very apparent in their work. And so I'm influenced by all of these people, and so are you, and, and so that's in our work. What do you think it is, if you had to try to pinpoint a thing or two that is or was so influential about the Twilight Zone when people of that ilk saw it? All of the subtext still resonated with people who were young, like myself, like yourself, even if we weren't fully conscious of it. I remember watching uh, like the marathon on New Year's Eve, like as a, you know, from like, you know, 10 to like 15. That was my thing, you know? Oh, yeah. On an emotional level, uh, it, it got to us, you know, and, and and we were looking at the surface level aesthetics as kids you know, the monsters, the weird camera angles, the mood, the atmosphere. But the reason why it has such longevity is that it spans so many stages of your life and so many generations. It has this way of affecting people at different stages of their lives so so effectively that uh, it, I don't think it'll ever go away. I mean, you know, 60 years from now, someone will be watching The Twilight Zone. There are some shows that no one will be watching in three years from now, you know, because they don't have anything to it. They're vacant and empty. 
but the Twilight Zone has so much depth that I don't, we've yet to see everything. And now it's like going back and reviewing that stuff. And I think nostalgia first pulls you back to those things, but then it just hits you like, like Twilight Zone, I think officially hit me like a truck in its most profound way in my adult life. And when I was a kid, I was blown away by it. But now I, every day I'll go back and, and, you know, ingest something that's related, especially these days. And I'm just like, oh my God, I was watching, um, uh, my favorite episode, uh, the midnight sun. And, I had this moment, this was a few days ago that it just, like I was, I I've, I got so emotional over it because at first just in awe of Rod Serling and what he was in touch with and how we're in the middle of all of this stuff now. And, and we were, this is really happening. I don't know how you could turn a blind eye to what we're in the middle of. It's horrifying. It's incredible. I'm sure it's changing how we are, we have yet to see wh- how this is affecting us, but this is tantamount to uh, to a Twilight Zone episode um, in so many ways that I, we've yet to see the final result of how this whole situation with COVID-19 is affecting us and how people reacted and, you know, the president uh, in office and how he's reacting. And I mean, all of these elements have informed so many different stories uh, Stephen King, look at the dead zone. Look at all of these. I mean, like there's so much of this, the stand, George Romero, the crazies, you know, like all of these things have been written about in science fiction for years that are happening right now that are a reality. Uh, so it's just, it, it's blown me away so yeah, much. You just mentioned the midnight sun, which is, um, I think that's from season three of the twilight zone. And that is talking about, uh, global warming and climate change uh, decades before global warming and climate change were uh, considered as a, you know, considered in the scientific community. And it's um, the twist. I don't want to give it away. I don't know if any, you know, the people have seen no, it. No, no, you should give it away. We should discuss it because it's such a great episode. And and it's okay to spoil uh, an episode from 1961. <laughs> I think, okay, so it's it's gone past the, uh, the threshold of uh, spoilers. So it's about uh, a, a woman who is in her apartment in New York City. And it's shot so well and it's so visceral because you can almost like feel how hot it is. I mean, she's she's got this like damp look. Everyone in there sweating. There's there. You know, they just did such a great job. You can almost see the heat coming off of the countertops and the water doesn't even look cool. Everything is uh, everything is like I, I think there's even a, a shot where the uh, mercury in a thermometer is uh, like about to burst. So the earth is like is like hurling towards the sun. And it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And everyone's losing their, their friggin' minds. Oh, yeah. And what, weren't her paintings, like at the climax, her paintings in, in the apartment, they're, like the oil paintings were dripping. She's getting invaded by other people in the apartment building who are coming to like grab water. That must have hit Stephen King so hard, those episodes, because it's so embedded in so many of his works. Um, you know, he, he, he avidly watched the twilight zone. Yeah. It, it, it was a lot about Sterling was writing about how we would react to a crisis like that. That was completely out of our control. Like this one, because earth changed its elliptical orbit and started moving toward the sun. There's nothing we can do. And everyone's just trying to make the best of it. But every day, gradually we start to realize it's getting worse. And people are going more and more mad. And the twist is she wakes up and you think it's this terrible dream, but it turns out that the earth is actually going in the opposite direction and everything's getting colder. 
Right, right. And and she had a fever, and her fever oh, broke. Yes. Oh, brilliant. Right. The Jerry Goldsmith score, Serling popping in and out with his cigarette. You know, like everything. What would be a worse reality? You guys think um, if if one if we had to choose one of those, the Earth happened to be displaced somehow, and it's moving closer to the sun, or it's moving away from the sun. That's really tough. I I, I suppose I would rather it move away um, because I guess we could figure out a way, you know, because as they do, let's say in Antarctica, we would, we could figure out a way with technology to survive perhaps underground to keep things heated, to find some kind of fuel source. But if it's moving toward the sun, we're finished. I don't know. I always have this uh, vision of myself, you know, going into Mad Max mode and becoming this like, post-apocalyptic anti-hero and you know having a little shotgun on my leg or something but in reality i'd probably just i'd i'd go to the store and buy like 16 cans of soup and hope that i survived whatever happened (laughs) we don't know maybe you'll you will become mad max you know that's the whole thing it's like i mean max was a, a cop but Still, sometimes, you know, we see this dynamic where these these mild mannered uh, characters are tested and they do rise to the surface. And like in Deliverance, right, Um, you know, the Burt Reynolds character is supposed to be the guy he's going to get everybody through. And when he breaks his leg, he becomes a, a waste. And the pacifist is the one that has to step up and fight. Uh, So I think there's something to that. Gosh, yeah. Well, uh, let's hope that never happens. But yeah, it's it's kind of ridiculous that we're even having a conversation like this about something on a global scale that is out of our control. You know, obviously we're talking about coronavirus. We're sitting here on April 16th, 2020, currently living through the quarantine. You know, it's very real. Uh, people scoff at this whole end of the world scenario. But one thing that really hit me was for anyone that has suffered from this or is suffering from it that unfortunately expires, uh, it is the end of the world for them. And if this virus didn't exist, they would be alive. So it's very real. Uh, that situation that's been written in science fiction over the years is a real thing. And we're living it in such a, uh, it's so strange how fiction had spilled over into our reality so much now, so profoundly, you know, even the stuff that we would have said, no, that can't ever happen. So I think maybe coming out of this, there there might be many positives that we we haven't recognized yet and and one of them is realizing that things can change and so we should be prepared you know and we should be conscious of these things and i i hopefully some good comes out of this a lot of good we, we we've yet to see it but you know because we're not done with this yet but when we do maybe maybe things will change in a good way well i think historically speaking that's typically the case it just takes a giant step back and look at uh society as a whole uh historically um and it's like you know the the pendulum analogy where you have to swing one way in order to go higher the next way so this could be one of those swings in a direction where you know we have to figure out what this particular generation is made of and who they choose to listen to as far as um uh, the people giving them the best advice to get through this and also what they feel is the best way to get through something like this uh you also said people facing the end of the world and that's interesting and 
and and getting through things to bring it back a little bit to the twilight zone one of my favorite episodes is called the shelter the shelter is about a family that has uh, dinner guests over and the dinner guests are all a diverse group of people celebrating this man's this doctor's birthday party during a time of uh, atomic bomb crisis and it and he's the only one that has built a bunker in his neighborhood and his friends his neighbors who he thought were um supporters of his and you know everyone they're singing happy birthday to him and and friends it turns out that every man's for himself and they bust into his, his into his shelter that was probably the episode that stuck with me the most to see how on the surface these sane people could go crazy and i feel like with this coronavirus you you start to see these these indicators of that that people not, not even metaphorically they're starting to storm their government buildings demanding them to reopen because they can't handle what's happening now because it's so different to them. Here's the thing. So I look back at that and I'm like, where where did that come from, you know, 60 plus years ago? And you had a variety of people who experienced World War II. Uh, you know, Serling was in World War II. He was a paratrooper. Uh, there were other people involved, other writers that experienced that. And that was a living hell that we can only read about in an experience in history books or portrayed in movies, but I think it was infinitely worse than what we see or what we can read. Talk about the end of the world. Think about people who experienced the worst of World War II. Uh, that was the end of the world, you know, uh, cities being incinerated and entire generations of people being carted off to their death. I, I, I mean, I don't think, hopefully nothing ever tops that Hopefully we never live to see that. And I think that informed a lot of these writers that what the possibilities were intelligently, you know, like what, what, and how we could behave under great duress. You know, they see their friends at war who might be easygoing guys and um, in reality, but then when they're faced with a crisis, how are these guys reacting? Even in like Vietnam going forward, it's like so many allegedly good people were doing some really horrible things. And that is human nature. And that's why I think these guys write about this stuff so much is to say, hey, you know, they're putting that in our consciousness and they're hoping that we understand it. So if there is a crisis, we don't behave that way. Any opinion on how uh, leadership is is directing people to act during moments of uh, crisis like this? Is, it, is there something Orwellian about that to you? It's hard for me to form an opinion on it just yet because I, I like to pay attention for a while before I do. But I, I've seen a variety just like you have. You know, I've seen what seems like, you know, our current president trying his best, you know, because his personality doesn't allow him to go so far, but to try and keep his cool, but then completely lose it and... I don't even know what he was doing in the last few days. Um, and maybe withholding, I feel like there's some information that we're not being told that that's the impression that I've been getting throughout this whole thing that like right now would be the wrong time one way or another to let us know the full story of what's going on. I, I shut my cable off, but still I have not seen an overabundance of carnage direct on the news. And I don't know why they're not doing it because they they never have a problem with it. They all they constantly do it on a nightly basis. And what leads me to believe not some kind of conspiracy but that it might be worse than we know and the numbers might be higher than we're we're allowed to know, but 
the way they've shut us down. You know, when was the last time the entire world was shut down? Yeah, I was wondering, you know, this this event, this coronavirus, um, COVID-19, you know, feels like an event that's going to change the world. Obviously, it feels like that right now. I don't know if it's going to, but how many of these moments are there in one's lifetime? You know, I feel like 9-11 was definitely one, like a moment that stopped the world and really changed the world. Seems like coronavirus is heading in that direction, too. When we step out of this, we'll realize it was just as profound. So what what else? Obviously, the flu uh, epidemic of 1918, I believe. Um, there's, you know, Kennedy was shot. Um, maybe that's a little bit more specific to this country, kind of like 9-11. I think it affected people all over the world. Everybody from Kennedy to Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. Malcolm X. And, and in our time, I think it's not exactly sparse, but it happened over a period of 10 years where these constant public shootings. Like, Great point. I don't care what explanation someone gives me. There's something weird about that. I don't, you know, just, just the constant barrage of those shootings just concerns me. I, I don't think they're just random events, you know. It's video games and movies, obviously. <laughs> I was going to say, Tim, when you were talking about these generation-defining um, catastrophes, we have to look at those public shootings, the mass shootings, and look at them as a whole. So if you have a virus like coronavirus, and that peaks at a certain time, so it rises and peaks and falls, and there'll be another wave of that later on this year, and then maybe a smaller wave after that, that's very similar to public shootings, these mass shootings, where there's a period of time where these things happen every two weeks, every three weeks. And then once coronavirus is done, I'm sure these mass shootings are going to happen again. This is also the age of of mass shootings. It gives me a lot of anxiety to think about the things that were shocking when I was 18 to 24 years old. I remember hearing about Columbine and that that stopped the, the country. I'd never seen anything like that, reading the details about high school kids walking over the bodies of their friends because these two individuals went in with guns. Right. And now it's like there could have been a shooting yesterday. I have no idea. If there was one and I read about it, I just start I moved on to something else because something else happened. A shooting could have happened yesterday and then the president pulls the funding from our country to the World Health Organization. So what's more shocking? You know, we're so desensitized. This is what gives me anxiety. I don't know what's going to happen in like five years. You know, it's weird that you mentioned that Stephen King in the 70s wrote a book called Rage, which is since out of print by his choice. He wrote that uh, as Richard Bachman, correct? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Talk about that. That's a really uh, that's a really interesting topic. So Rage is about uh, a, a school shooting, an angry, you know, kid who goes into school and and shoots his teacher and some students. And King wrote this many, many years ago when it was science fiction, you know, like it wasn't happening. You know, you had Charles Whitman and, and, and a couple of, you know, random assassins here and there, but nothing like what we've endured. And just like so many uh, horrific things that we even partake in, we try and ignore who we are. And what's so important about these stories is that they they hold a mirror up to us with its subtext. It helps us to change and evolve uh, because it scares us. Seeing who we are scares us. King pulled that story because I think he was terrified that maybe that idea would be glorified. He wrote it when it was more safe, where he couldn't imagine some kid reading Rage and just getting up and shooting 
a teacher. It just wasn't within his own imagination. It was it was fiction. But then he's like, no, no, this has to go. This could be influential. And he 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 pulled it. And I don't know where we're going after this. You know, I want to imagine a much better scenario, but who knows? And only time will tell. But what you were saying before is also going to happen. Part of our daily existence now is not being so affectionate. We're not going to shake hands as much or if at all, who knows? I mean, you know, I uh, I don't live far from my, my parents. I moved out here to be a little closer to them because they had gotten sick, uh, each of them respectively, you know, and, and, and overcame that. And I, you know, told them, please be careful because you beat cancer, both of you, and I don't want you dying from this. And uh, but I haven't hugged them uh, in a long time now. And I think we're all getting like that. Like I'm I don't want to just in case I have this stuff, I don't want to pass it on to them. And the that affection is being taken from us and that connection is being taken from us because of this virus as well. And what kind of society are we going to live in? We're never going to shake hands again. Are we ever going to hug someone again? You know, like it's absurd to think, but if it gets worse, that's the practice we're going to be in as a normal everyday routine. And this stuff was written in science fiction. You know, so much that was written in in fiction, not just science fiction, but horror and, and political fiction. It's coming to fruition. It's real. It's interesting that you're talking about the lack of physical uh, connection with you know your neighbor, your the the people that you interact with or you used to interact with on a daily basis. One step beyond that, which is happening now, is you don't even see people's faces. We're being told to wear a protective covering over your face, your nose and your mouth, if you're in a situation where you can't socially isolate. Well, that's going to be me in the future. I'm going to wear the humongous mask for Mad Max <laughs> and be driving my, my Mustang Black Sunshine around and just say, just walk away. <laughs> if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let us explain. First of all, Tim, it's free. We love free. Ah. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Did I mention that it's free? I did, didn't I? You did. Well, it's not only free, Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much every other one, many, many more. And you can make money from your podcast, that cheddar. Cha-ching. With no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the Anchor app for free or go to anchor.fm to get started. We love Anchor. Does it feel like we're living in an alternate reality, though? Did, like like that we've slipped into a different dimension these past uh, few months? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Easily slipped. We're told by a big entity that this is what we have to do. And one of the more comical, um, I guess, memes or whatever that's out there right now is some guy in China ate a bat and now I can't, you know, and fill in the blank. That's the comedic look at this. To your point, Tim, we just slipped into this so easily because we 
created ways to make it easier for ourselves to comprehend and and understand what's going on, I guess. I don't know if I knew that about Stephen King with that book he published under uh, Richard Bachman called Rage, but it seems like the world kind of changed around King at that point. Like, obviously, he wouldn't have written that now. Like, what use would that have, right? That wouldn't even have been original. It would have been just so hacky. It never would have gotten published if someone wrote that now. Sure. You had mentioned Romero earlier. What, you know, what if there was, you know, instead of the coronavirus, what if we were living through some kind of zombie outbreak? Would George Romero have pulled Night of the Living Dead? Give it time. Take into consideration, you know, and, and, and fiction has already absorbed this, but a very real thing that occurs in the Amazon. And again, I, I, I'm paraphrasing some of this because I, I I remember as much as I can about the scientific nature of it or the, the nature of this fungus, a particular cordyceps fungus that is intelligent enough to infect the brain of Amazonian ants. And what it does is it, it, it completely infests the ant with the fungus through its system. The ant dies just after it is possessed. It turns into a zombie ant, crawls up a tree its head splits open, a thing grows out of it and shoots out this these spores into the air, infecting and making more zombie ants. Now, what if that mutates and infects people? Because we keep screwing with the Amazon. And let's say we mess with a, a section where that cordyceps now, that can get to people, not just insects. And it evolves and gets, we're, we're finished. So there was um, a video game, actually. The last long game that I played years ago came out called The Last of Us that took that very concept of the cordyceps fungus and transferred it over to people. And there you have at least one scenario that could happen to turn us into zombies. But if you look at, let's say, like 28 Days Later or stuff like that, or even the crazies. These are very possible. First of all, I wouldn't put it past anything happening now. Anything. Alien invasion, zombie apocalypse. I'm just waiting for it to happen. It, it, you know, because everything else has happened. And uh, if you, we can talk about science, it's possible. It's very possible. So sorry to bring you the bad news. No, it's, it's, uh, there was a couple of, uh, moments there where, first of all, that, that's, that's a really eerie scenario. Also, I, I just want the listeners to know that we did not rehearse this conversation. That was a random question that Tim <laughs> thought of, and somehow you you pulled that example out, that terrifying example. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, kudos to you. And I think you have a new nickname. I think it's the the Jack of All Mysteries. Thank you. Oh my my god, <laughs> you do you know you know any mystery we throw at you? It's unbelievable. Encyclopedia of of all things all things ominous. It's incredible. You know what? I'll wear that badge with pride because I'm I am genuinely interested in this stuff, and as I've always been. So, for anybody that it's have seen the the two shows that I've made, I'm not just some chatterbox that was you know hired out of central casting. Like I really do live and breathe this stuff. So, I'm curious. Uh, we're talking about literature and movies and these uh, almost prophetic works of uh, of of fiction that we consumed in the past during you know our our younger years uh, and how that's relatable to what's going on today have you ever read the chocolate war no but i'll write it down and read it for sure the chocolate war is one of my favorite books it's a young adult novel 
by Robert Cormier, and it was published in the mid-70s. Could have been right around the time of Rage, and it's one of the more widely banned young adult books. I don't know if it is still as widely banned as it used to be. It put a spotlight on where this toxic masculinity comes from in, in youth, and it's centered at a uh, an all-male Catholic school. There's a clique, and they have to perform these tasks, which are dangerous, in order to gain entry into this uh, elite club. It's incredible. I don't remember ever thinking about this book as much as I've been thinking about it in the last four years, because we talk about you know toxic masculinity and the pressure that is put on young men to be a certain thing. And this is this was a again a prophetic book for its time talking about that and got banned a lot because it was talking about that. I grew up around a lot of that, so much of it that it took me a while to kind of shake it from my own training, you know, and uh, and I'm glad I did because it just um, if it's not applied in war, I don't even want to say organized fighting because you have to stay calm and focused in that. But let's say in something that requires your rage and your uh, overconfidence to get through a lot of the time, it's just going to get you in trouble. And I think we got to find a balance though. You can't completely neuter yourself either. So that's an interesting subject. I'd love to read more about that. Well, geez, you guys making me feel like, like an idiot. I don't, I don't have a book to bring up. If there was a book that was published that had something in it, in its content that a small group of people didn't want the masses to read about, you've probably read it because it had some controversial element to it. Like, oh, this is one of the more banned books, like Catcher in the Rye, for example. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, how do you feel about that? I don't like things being kept from me. I, I'm not a child, and I want to be able to read and absorb things. And I think you can order Mein Kampf right now. That's not banned. So why are they banning Catcher in the Rye or Rage? You know, we're adults. We should be able to read that stuff. And I think maybe keeping it from us creates a desire to uh, want it even more. It's what you do after, right? If you order Mein Kampf and then you decide that you want to isolate and destroy a group of people because they're ethnically superior to them, there's something a lot deeper there. You should have the choice to read these things, though. Of course. It's arguable and debatable that many religious tomes are quite dangerous and we should burn them and ban them, too. But who are... Who are we to say? That's just our opinion and, and our perspective. And I think everything should be available. Every uh, dangerous text, every piece of smut, whatever you could think of, and every intelligent book should be available for people always for us to understand and learn, because that's really what that's all about. It's not meant to turn us into something. It's meant for us to observe and understand human history and understand ourselves. And if we can get to that point, that's true evolution. Keeping things from us is devolving. And that's what uh, Orwell was writing about in 1984. That's what Pi Rational was writing about in The Mask, you know, like all that stuff, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's that we can't ban books. We need to, I think rage should be published. Yes. With a, with something, with a preface, an updated preface, but it should be published. It should be re, re back out there in the world. Couldn't agree with you more. I think a lot of these books, Tim, what was the movie that was just, uh, it was, it was shelved and then they just released it. It was, a um, the hunt, the hunt. Yeah. 
What's the plot of that? Well, it's um, it's really not even that crazy. Um, the plot is kind of political or playing on political Twitter, right versus left. And it's sort of like uh, a liberal group of, you know, psychopaths uh, kidnap a bunch of kind of like red state people and drop them in the woods and they're being hunted now for their lives. Um, so that's the movie. And, and Trump actually tweeted about it, I think, back in, I don't know, maybe September before it was supposed to come to theaters. And so I think that posed a unique problem to the filmmakers and the studio uh, releasing it. So I think, I don't know if it was a strategic move just for money um, that they decided to hold it or, or um, you know, they were really afraid of some blowback or something. There was a movie, I still haven't watched it because I heard about what was in it. And a lot, of, it was, you know, around horror circles, it was talked about constantly and actually got a lot of attention. But there was just content in there because what, what you see, you cannot unsee. And I don't care what the subtext is in a situation like that. I'm not interested in watching. But stylistically, I think it resonated with some people that like dangerous cinema. I like dangerous cinema, but not that dangerous. You know, like, I, 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 there's just no reason for it. But the filmmakers seem to have a reason. And I'll respect that to an extent, but I'm not going to watch it. But that movie, where it perhaps should have been banned, uh, was celebrated, uh, you know, as like this dangerous statement against uh, the Serbian government. And that's what the Serbian filmmakers were saying they were doing. Now, if you rewind back to someone like Pasolini, who made a movie, Sallow, very dangerous movie. I couldn't even get through it. Uh, similar in a way, but Pasolini allegedly died because of it. You know, he was attacking the Sicilian government. And those films are very powerful. I think The Hunt in itself was similar to that, but you might be right that the reason why they held it back is they saw it as a great marketing opportunity. And the Serb a Serbian film applies to that, but Salo does not. Salo was truly, Pasolini was this obsessed commentator. You know, he was more along the lines of Serling in that sense that he cared so much about what he was doing that it you know, ended up killing him. Hey, guys, I can read too. <laughs> I just feel like I just feel like I ne that needed to be said. Let's talk about Jason Voorhees for a minute. There's a lot of deep meaning in Friday the 13th. They are fun. Yeah, even when Roy was killing people in part 5. Oh, spoiler. You know, it wasn't Jason. Roy. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on, Chris. You can't spoil that. Does anyone go out on Halloween night as Roy and someone says you're Jason? No, no, I'm Roy. So you got to correct me. <laughs> you just that you just gave me my Halloween costume this year. That's great. Oh, you're Jason. That's pretty. That's pretty easy. You're Jason. No, dude, I'm Roy. Yeah, he has the blue stripes. On <laughs> Roy. Uh... <laughs> well, speaking of dressing up like a weirdo um, around Halloween, how do you feel about these clowns that that do it? I know it's kind of subsided a little bit, but uh, this is one of Lance and I's favorite things to talk about. Okay, so that happened around the time of the new version of Stephen King's It coming out in the theater, right? Like, I think that somewhat inspired that, no? Yeah, I think you're right. I I think it had maybe been been um uh, like uh, taking place a little bit before then, but it definitely hit a fever pitch around the time I think the first movie was released. Yeah, they were they were really celebrating those two movies. Um, I still don't think the real version of that movie has been made yet. Maybe in another ten years, but uh, 
I mean, the, you know, the adaptation of the book, the book was so fantastic, but people dressing up as clowns, you know, what was the first example of a creepy clown? I think we can go back to the silent era for that or the Joker. The second someone thought about the concept of a clown, it became creepy. In fiction, like who really wrote the terrifying clown story? And the clown seems to have this odd dynamic because it lures children in, wants to devour them, that whole Pennywise thing. Here's a weird story. I don't know if you heard of a, a director named Victor Salva. Have you ever heard of him? No. Made a movie called Jeepers Creepers. Oh, yeah. Before that, American Zoetrope, which is uh, Francis Coppola's company, financed Salva's first feature film, which is a horror movie starring a young Sam Rockwell as one of the main characters called Clown House. And it was about a bunch of violent mental patients escaped from the asylum and attacked real clowns while they were you know, getting undressed after the, a local circus came to town. Then they put on their costumes. And one dark night, I think it is on Halloween, they go out and terrorize these brothers, Sam Rockwell being the oldest brother. And the youngest brother, and this is what happened behind the scenes, the star of the movie was sexually assaulted by the director behind the scenes. And that movie has been banned because of the things that happened behind the scenes. However, Salva went to prison, did time, was released, and had Francis Coppola produced uh, another film for him called Jeepers Creepers. What? Okay, so you just brought up a movie that I haven't thought of in so long. I saw this when I was a kid. Is this the same movie in the opening credits where they, they kill the clowns and then they're putting on the makeup? Yes, that's Clown House. That was a really scary movie at the time for me. Right, but think about the maker. He's luring in children. Yes. Also, they say there's a weird dynamic with him and the creeper. Because the creeper's like smelling, the, you know, uh, Justin Long's underwear when he gets to his laundry in the car. Like really weird stuff that got into this movie from a convicted child molester. And Francis Ford Coppola was happy to fund uh, his movie when he got out of prison. I don't know if you know, uh, but the movie industry has a whole culture of uh, creepy shit <laughs> from uh, what <laughs> from Harvey Weinstein to uh, Roman Polanski and beyond. Um, this uh, does not surprise me, but I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. We I think we have to mention John Wayne Gacy yeah. too, though, as part of uh, what makes clowns potentially so scary. And I think just the the face paint it, it conceals the identity you know so it sort of serves the same function as a mask but in some cases could even be scarier i think and he knew that gacy knew that he knew how terrifying he was he was even uh making his own artwork after the fact after they yeah. covered the bodies of 30 young men or boys right truth is uh, infinitely more terrifying than any fiction we can write and now we're living in all of it it's weird Here's something interesting I just found um, on, on this topic that uh, there was someone named Ra uh, Lauren Coleman, who's a cryptozoologist who studies folklore, and she came up with the phantom clown theory, which basically says that most of these sightings are by children, and so some of them aren't even true. Real quick on that, Lauren Coleman owes me an email back, and it's actually a gentleman. Oh, really? Oh, oh, pardon me. Jeez. Well, uh, yeah, with, with the name, that's a, a, a fine uh, name for a man. My apologies to uh, Sir Lauren. <laughs> he's, he's, I don't um, know if he's a sir. He's a baron. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what do you guys think about that? Okay. Well, you can question that because um, 
yes, mass hysteria does exist. I, I believe there's some examples of it, but is it possible that, you know, that some of those things you saw as a kid, could you be peering into, you know, unexplainable phenomena? There, there's a phenomena called uh, the Harlequin. A lot of kids have seen it in their bedrooms as children, you know, uh, getting ready to go to sleep. It was somewhat portrayed in a Stephen King cat's eye episode. But that's a real thing. There are a lot of people that claim they saw this Harlequin, this thing that came out of the wall, and it was kind of like a jester, clown-type makeup. But there were people around the world that saw this. Now, as adults telling this story, didn't even know each other and said, I saw that thing. And what are these kids seeing? And if a kid in Arizona is seeing you know, this, this clown manifest and another kid in England is seeing it, they don't even know each other. They don't even know that they're telling a similar story until later. And that is that kind of thing has happened, too. So I wonder what that is, because the mass hysteria can only be induced by something that we all collectively hear or read, which could be Stephen King's It, or Stephen King could be predicting that whole thing or ha has some a touch to our consciousness. You know, here's a here's a fun fact that I just uh, I just learned by way of Bing. Do you guys know where the first reported phantom clown sighting was? No, where was it? It was in Brookline, Massachusetts in 1981. Stephen King's It came out in 1986, so it wasn't like the children who said that the men dressed up as clowns trying to lure them into a van was inspired by reading Stephen King's It. He wouldn't be writing that for another five years. And it spread all across the country. Uh, it resurfaced again in, I, I think it was in the, like, 2000... 14 or so. I had no idea that it went back that far to 1981, and I had no idea that it was in Massachusetts. Yeah, and I believe there were uh, horror films in the 70s that portrayed clowns as, as something to be terrified of. And even before that, you know, in cartoons, think about like ancient cartoons, you know, even the old weird, the weirdest cartoons, let's say from the 20s or 30s, you know, uh, there were some creepy clown aspects to those things too. So I wonder where that all started. It's hard to find something that is a definitive, oh, this was the first uh, evil clown injection into pop culture. Also, I didn't realize that the Joker was invented in like 1940. That's what I mean. You know, you go back and you have all these these portrayals. Now, what in literature also? You know, like, well, I'm not aware of everything. And EC Comics, you know, did EC Comics portray a creepy clown? Uh, did Weird Tales way, way back portray something like that? You know, the Traveling Circus was a huge thing uh, back then. I feel like mm -hmm. Edgar Allan Poe yeah. might have. You've been reading a lot of Poe lately, Tim. <laughs> Is there an Edgar Allan Poe story? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I haven't been reading that much Poe to, uh, to know his entire catalog, but I do like Poe. One question came to mind while we were talking about Stephen King uh, so much today and how he seems to pre almost predict the future or in, in some way or the world changes uh, as to kind of like adapt to where to what he's written or in the case of the clowns, like, uh, you know, I don't know, like maybe he didn't cause those things but i don't know maybe he's tapped into something that happens at a certain time like has stephen king mastered the matrix is my question i think all of the above i really do i think everything you just said there is truth in and like for instance there's he's also has his influences so if we go back to george romero for a second romero in the early 70s made a movie called the crazies the crazies uh was very much 
the information that got into Stephen King's brain for the stand. The, the virus in the crazies is called Trixie. And in the stand, it's called Captain Trips. It was made several years before. And I'm sure that and Night of the Living Dead sparked something in King's brain to write his incredible novel. It's this, this exchange between these brilliant minds that keep going. What are the origins of it? You know, I, I, I think it's, these are, these could be innate fears you know, as we go, I think a lot of us are worried about these things, even more so now. Think about the fiction that's going to come out now. You know, I don't even know what it could be. And I'm worried. Uh, as long as we don't have an organism like what was in John Carpenter's The Thing, I think we're good. <laughs> you, did you, you just jinxed it. You jinxed it for everybody. <laughs> Any day, any any minute now that could happen, Chris. Well, the cordyceps fungus is just as bad as that. Yeah, I mean, if that was on a bigger scale, you're you're right. That would be that would could potentially if that if that happened to humans, that would be it for the race. Yeah, you come home and Grandpa Joe is climbing up a tree and the head <laughs> splits open and these tentacles fly out and uh, you know we're finished. Jesus, he was almost like my real grandpa Joe, but I don't know. You could tell there was something wasn't there. wasn't quite the tentacle uh, head split. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, um, this has been a really thought provoking conversation. Really, once again, once again, you've come on here, Chris. You've knocked it out of the park. You've you've taken every single. Uh, thing we've thrown at you, which, as Lance noted, there is no show sheet here. We're just we're riffing. I got one more thing. Sorry to interrupt. Sure. Trivia question, Christopher, Stephen King fan. We've been talking about it. Do you know Pennywise, the Dancing Clown's real name? Uh, Robert Gray. You son of a gun. Yep, got it. I love that book. Yeah, this, this guy doesn't miss, Lance. This guy does not miss. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us again, Christopher. And thank you very much for listening out there. And stay safe. Wash your hands. And uh, hopefully this will all be over soon. Stay away from uh, Grandpa Joe. <laughs> I will. Take care. 